3: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We like to think good work is always rewarded. But what if some people who could do good work can't get their foot in the door in the first place? That's where some recent hiring initiatives that look beyond unfair stereotypes come in, as Lee Cowan will report in our cover story.
4: When tech giant Microsoft used World Autism Day three years ago to announce that it was starting a pilot program to hire autistic workers. Something remarkable happened. What was the response?
5: It was off the hook. We had over 700 resumes within a few weeks.
4: How much has having this job changed your life? It has completely turned it around. The changing face of workplace diversity ahead on Sunday morning.
6: Oh, nice!
3: When the call goes out for the envelope, please, for Best Original Screenplay Oscar, the duo that wrote The Big Sick will be as one in anticipation, pretty much as they are in real life, as Leslie Stahl shows us.
5: We're getting a little bit of work done. It's a little messy. Come on in.
7: Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, Emily Gordon, have had their lives turned upside down. The Big Sick, Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani
6: our names, and we screamed and cried. I have to tell you something, babe. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? Good. Yeah, you can't look like you and yell, white girl. No, it's okay. We hate terrorists. They'd
7: never written a movie before, but decided to try and tell the basically true story together. Later on Sunday morning,
8: you'll see
5: the true story of our movie, The
6: Big Sick.
3: For Valentine-minded couples at the workplace, working it out has always involved a certain amount of tact and discretion. And in the current climate, that's more true than ever, as Tony DeCopal discovered.
9: Have I told you today how much I love working with
10: you? It (laughs) used to be that the office was the place you might meet a future spouse.
11: Let's go get them. Used to be. In the climate today, things are more gray than ever.
10: Not at companies like Southwest Airlines.
2: Love is in the air. Love is our stock symbol. We fly out of love field.
10: Working it out later on Sunday morning.
3: Alina Cho samples one candy seller's sweet success. Brooke Silva Braga asks if Lincoln really slept here. And Connor Knighton is island hopping once again. This morning, he's at a most romantic spot off the coast of Wales. All coming up when our Sunday Morning Podcast continues. The words, good work, are always good for an employee to hear. Of course, to receive that praise, you first have to be an employee which for one group of talented but underrated people has often been a challenge. Until now, Lee Cowan reports our cover story. 27-year-old
4: Christopher polly thought he had it all figured out when it came to looking for a job. So all of these are all the people you sent resumes to? Yes. Whoa. He had a detailed spreadsheet of each and every position he applied for. How many?
12: At least 600.
4: Wow. But... Despite his degree in computer science from California Polytechnic State University, he went two years with barely a nibble. Were you getting pretty discouraged?
12: Oh my gosh, my morale really started to drop towards the end. Like there were days where I would either hardly fill any applications at all or just simply not apply to anything.
4: He knew he had the smarts for most jobs. He was a former spelling bee champ after all. But Christopher struggles with social and communication skills because he's also autistic. While precise numbers are hard to come by, by some estimates at least 80% of adults with autism are unemployed, even though their IQs are often well above average. This is called at night in dreams. Sometimes their job skills can present themselves in unique ways. For Christopher, it's video games. His ability to recognize patterns and his acute attention to detail, both hallmarks of autism, make this look pretty easy. And they are the same skills he was hoping would impress prospective employers in the computer programming world. But he always had to get past that interview, which was a challenge at best. Was there any in any of those interviews a time where you just wanted to tell somebody, look, I know my social skills maybe aren't quite what you expect, but I I know I can do this job and I know I can do a really good job if you give me a chance?
12: Yes. But you never said that to anybody? Most of the time, no. Because why? I I just wasn't comfortable, because it it makes me come across as desperate.
4: At Microsoft, however, there was no need to hide his autism. They were looking for it.
5: It's a talent pool that really hasn't been tapped.
4: Jenny Lafleurie is the chief accessibility officer.
5: There really is and was a lot of data on the table that said to us that we were missing out. We were missing out on an opportunity to bring talent in with autism.
4: So in a way, it sounds like this was almost a business imperative.
5: Heck yeah. People with disabilities are a strength and a force of nature in this company, myself included.
4: LaFleurie, who is profoundly deaf, communicates by reading lips and working with an interpreter. She helped create a hiring program for Microsoft in 2015 outside Seattle, designed to better identify candidates with autistic talents.
13: So I'm going to put 18 minutes on the clock.
4: Instead of the traditional job interview, focusing so heavily on social skills. That's what we want for the base. The company has replaced it with a vetting process that lasts for weeks and team-building exercises like this demonstration called the Marshmallow Challenge.
6: All right, is that marshmallow going to fit on top of this thing somehow?
4: Being able to watch a candidate in that environment as yeah. opposed to sitting across the table interviewing them right. makes all the difference in the world.
5: Every difference. Every day in any company, in any role, you're going to be asked to work with someone else right. to figure out a problem or a challenge And yet in that or that scenario. Project,
4: they're not as self-conscious that they're being observed for a job. They're just doing a
5: task. It's marshmallows. Mm-hmm.
4: After Christopher went through a similar unconventional interview process back in 2016, Microsoft quickly hired him as a software engineer. I like it. Well done. His manager, Brent Truell, says he was immediately impressed by Christopher's out-of-the-box thinking. When we are faced
0: with really complicated problems, the solutions to those aren't always simple. <laughs> and Christopher always kind of brings new insights and having that creative mind. He always brings something new to the team, which is really
4: exciting. Which is exactly why you, why you hired him, right? That's what you're looking for. Isn't right. It? It's an idea that's catching on. Last April, 50 big name companies, including JP Morgan, Ford, and Ernst & Young, came together for a summit on how to bring more autistic adults into the workforce. We know at
14: SAP that innovation really happens at the edges.
4: It was hosted at the Silicon Valley campus of German software maker SAP. SAP was one of the first large companies to reach out to the autistic community. It started its Autism at Work program almost five years ago. And since then, it's hired 128 people on the spectrum, with the goal of hiring more than 600. I have been in this industry for
14: close to 30 years, and I can tell you it's probably the single most rewarding program that I have uh, been involved with.
4: Jose Velasco heads the program. The biggest surprise for him, he says, has been the variety of candidates applying.
14: Very quickly we started getting resumes from people that had degrees in history and literature, in graphic design, attorneys, a
4: whole wide range of
14: gamut of, of jobs.
4: So really you went into this thinking that that people with autism would be good at certain jobs. Yes. What you ended up discovering is they're good at all jobs. They are good at just about every role. And they're expected to perform in those roles just like anyone else and everybody speaks english mike sabrowski for example was hired three years ago and works in cybersecurity in sap's office outside philadelphia when we were visiting jose was helping mike get ready for a long stint at the company world headquarters in germany if you would have told me
14: six years ago that we would have an employee who is openly autistic in the company uh going on a business trip to Germany for
4: for a month I would have have not believed you
15: I'm still looking through the documentation
4: almost everyone has been a surprise he says he points to 26 year old Gloria Mendoza
15: you should see some of the videos I had when I was a child I was not very socially skilled with the other kids not showing interest with other people displaying some of the challenging behaviors that a child in the autism spectrum would have. When she was very young, I used to worry so much because I never thought she would overcome all what she has done. So it was like a very dark cloud.
4: Her parents, Rosaria and Enrique Mendoza, helped get Gloria years of speech and occupational therapies, as well as access to top doctors. Gloria made huge strides in her childhood, but her parents were still concerned about how autism might affect her future.
6: We worry about uh, her adult life. Well, first of all, because she made it through high school. Then once she taught us, you know, can she make it through college? Can she be independent?
4: She made it through both high school and college. In fact, she got two degrees from Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. One in music. She has a beautiful singing voice. <laughs> and another in computer science. And yet, a year after graduating and hundreds of resumes later, she still couldn't find a job until she applied to SAP.
15: Probably the best part about working here is that I can use the skills which I have studied whilst being among people that understand who I am and how I'm different from everybody else.
4: SAP put Gloria through five weeks of training, which included working on her social skills.
15: Hey George. Hi Gloria, how's it going?
4: She's now in something called digital business services.
15: Now, are there any more further questions or incidents you want me to add?
4: Where she deals directly with customers. What's the one dream you really want to come true?
15: Probably that I can be really up there at my department, earning a lot of money and still keeping the friends that I have. I
12: heard you're like, I'm actually still
8: alive! <laughs> I can't
12: see a thing.
4: Her new friends are mostly coworkers in the autism program and they try to get together regularly. This was game night.
15: And that's CBS is how you play Smash Brothers. (laughs) I never really had that many friends when I was younger. And having this wide variety of friends that understands me really makes all the difference for me. How so? Because I can express myself in ways that people won't look at me weird. And it turns out that a lot of people have common interests as I do.
4: SAP boasts a retention rate of about 90% for their autistic employees. Part of that may be due to the fact that they're not just set adrift in the workplace all alone.
13: Good, how was game night? Fun.
4: Each participant in the program is assigned a mentor from within the company, sort of like an on-site guardian
5: angel. So do you feel pretty comfortable and good to go? So far.
4: Okay. Gabby robertson Collie who has a cousin on the spectrum, volunteered to work with Gloria.
5: I think it's, it's just the, the rewards of getting to be friends with, with these colleagues who have autism. It's not something you get in your typical corporate day-to-day experience.
4: Hey, Chris. Microsoft also has mentors. Ready to go get lunch? Yeah. Good. Melanie Carmesino, who works with Christopher, has a personal connection as well. She has a son who's autistic. What have you taken away from this whole experience personally?
11: Um,
7: hope. Um, I think that this program gives hope to the autism community. It gives hope to parents like me. and it gives hope to people like my son that a company can and sorry, and will look past their differences and see their gifts and and let them contribute to society just like everybody else this
4: is it, huh? This is my floor Christopher is now independent living on his own in a high-rise apartment something he's always wanted I don't want to ask how much you're you're making but you're, you're doing pretty good it sounds like yeah yes did you ever imagine
12: you'd be making this much money no I never <laughs> did honestly I would have been I would have been perfectly happy with like half the half the money I'm making now.
13: He bought
4: a car and drives himself to work. And for the first time he says, looks forward to arriving in a place where he's accepted for who he is.
2: Kind of shuffle
4: the deck. He knows there are still challenges ahead, but given a chance to prove his worth, says Christopher, has given him an optimism he never had. If other Kids or young adults or adults with autism are watching this. What are you? What's your message to them? Don't give up,
12: and make sure to always aim high. Don't aim in the middle. Um, you know, shoot for the stars every time because you never know what might happen. <laughs>
3: A page from our Sunday morning almanac, February 11th, 2005. 13 years ago today, the day physicist and engineer Samuel Alderson died at the age of 90. Auto safety advocates honor Alderson to this day for developing the very first anthropomorphic test device. Popularly known as the crash dummy, He did it back in 1968. Endowed with the dimensions, weight, and flexible joints of an actual human being, crash dummies have endured countless tests over the decades since, all to make travel safer for the rest of us. Crash Dummies really hit the big time in the 1980s with the debut of public service announcements starring Vince and Larry. This
14: simple exercise can help you
10: stay healthy. You gotta do it every day, Vince.
3: Whose various automotive disasters helped drive home the advantages of buckling up.
9: You could learn a lot from a dummy.
3: Though Vince and Larry retired from the PSA circuit back in 1999, their costumes live on as part of the collection at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. More importantly, the Crash Dummy PSA campaign is credited with increasing seatbelt use more than fivefold, saving some 85,000 lives. Connor Knighton's love of island hopping has taken him to a scenic spot that's all about love.
1: Off the northwest coast of Wales, lovely Shandwen Island holds a special place in the hearts of Welsh lovers. It was here that St. Dwynwin, the Welsh patron saint of lovers, lived out her days praying for romantics everywhere to find the happiness she never did. The Welsh celebrate St. Dwynwin's Day on January 25th. And if you want to show your sweetheart that you really love them, you don't get them chocolates or flowers or jewelry. You get them a spoon. Kerry Thomas is a woodcarver who specializes in the art of Welsh love spoons.
14: It's a Welsh tradition, which dates back to the 17th century. Love spoons were carved by young men and offered to the young ladies that they were courting. And if accepted, they were then regarded as tokens of engagement or betrothal.
1: Thomas made his first simple spoon in 1969 as a gift for his
14: girlfriend. I thought that I would learn how to carve to save myself having to buy an engagement ring.
1: (laughs) That spoon worked its magic, and Thomas has been making increasingly elaborate utensils every year to commemorate his life together with his wife.
14: This is important. Two smooth spoons, two rough spoons. What's that signify? The rough and smooth of married life. Hmm. So it's our wedding spoon.
1: It's not all going to be smooth spoons. It's
14: not all going to be smooth. It's not all going to be rough. You've got a lot of character in that. Each
1: spoon starts as a single piece of wood. After drawing and cutting out a design, Thomas will spend hours crafting custom spoons for couples who may not be as handy as he is. Each one is a labor of love.
14: And now you gently relax your hand, because you see the white on there. Just relax. Love, think love. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And now you just tap gently.
1: You can say a lot with a spoon. Each twist, each knot, signifies something important.
14: You're putting little bits of stories. You're putting little messages into your spoons.
1: At Castle Welsh Crafts in the capital city of Cardiff, Owner Bob Rice guides his customers the through the
14: language of Love Spoon. And then with the wheel, this is one of the really old symbols, he was saying, I will work for you. The anchor is one of the older symbols. because
1: An anchor might symbolize steadfast love. A lock, the promise of a new home. The number of seeds in the cage is often used to represent how many children a couple would like to have.
14: So if some guy comes, goes home, and he's had one done with six spheres in, well, uh... (laughs) she she better look out.
1: (laughs) These decorative objects were once functional. The spoon itself is a symbol.
14: What you do with the spoon, you're mixing and blending. So the love spoon, you're mixing and blending the two hearts together. That's the object.
1: It's a way to say, I love you in wood instead of in words.
3: Let's take a minute to catch up. Our cover story last weekend on girls joining the Boy Scouts sparked some pushback from the Girl Scouts. Shame on CBS Sunday Morning for portraying girls in your Boy Scout segment as mere tag-alongs to their brothers, says a tweet from the Girl Scouts' Twitter account a point reinforced by former journalist and Girl Scouts board member, Jan Hopkins. Given the current times, she writes, it is especially important that girls are in a safe and nurturing environment. For the record, Tony DeCoppo's story was about the changing face of the Boy Scouts. Rita Braver did a piece about the Girl Scouts back in 2002, and we did talk with Girl Scout CEO, Sylvia Acevedo, in last Sunday's report. And now on the subject of complaints, retired Army Chief Petty Officer Eric Simmons of Petaluma, California, sent along a message pointing out that a recent almanac, our story on West Point's infamous eggnog riot, featured the music of Semper Paratus, the official song of the U.S. Coast Guard. Of course, everyone knows the Army's service song is The Army Goes Rolling Along, which goes like this... Working it out on the job is a day-to-day reality for any couple involved in a workplace romance, particularly these days. Tony DeCopel has been talking to some of the couples who've been making it work.
10: In Hershey, Pennsylvania, the rush is on. Those are all Hershey's kisses. Close to a billion will be made just for this Valentine's Day. Hey, let's go get them. And if you need an even bigger dose of something sweet, watch their hands. When did you develop your sign language?
7: Oh, that one. That's been... That's... Yes. yeah.
1: What is that? This means I love you. So. Well,
7: when we walk into work together and he goes to go out the door, mm-hmm. we just kind of both go like that to each other.
10: Kay and Rob Wagner met on their first day
1: at work. We were sitting in orientation. In and, this building. And I'd look back every now and, then and I thought, oh, pretty girl back there. <laughs> and the rest is history.
10: They fell in love on the factory floor. I was always goofing off, so she would laugh. He always would make laughing. me laugh, yeah. What would he do?
7: Oh, his like his hair net, he'd pull it down over his face and he'd be like, and the candy would, and I'm like, but keep up. Just funny stuff like that.
10: They've been co workers now for 22 years. For 21 of those years, they've also been husband and wife, and they're not alone at Hershey's, where love and work mix about as well as milk and cocoa. The modern workplace is one of America's most reliable matchmakers. It brought together Michelle and Barack Obama, Bill and Melinda Gates, <laughs> Careful, easy, easy. and happily, I also met my wife at work in the makeup room at NBC.
1: This looks good.
10: As newlyweds, we're still building our future. Do you think it's still possible in this day and age to have a, a romance like yours at work? I do.
7: If you believe in it, yes.
10: But love on the clock has soured recently.
11: In the climate today especially, things are more gray than ever.
10: Rosemary Hafner is the chief human resources officer for Career Builder, a matchmaker for employers and employees. According to their latest survey, only about a third of people have dated a coworker or will admit to it, the lowest in 10 years.
11: Each organization is going to decide what's best for them. Some say no dating, some say identify yourself to HR and fill out a love contract.
10: Yes, a love contract, otherwise known as a consensual romance in the workplace agreement. In response to the Me Too movement of people with stories of sexual harassment and worse, companies are looking for new ways to protect their workers.
11: It's very difficult to control the outcome when it is two human beings coming together, whether it's in an office setting or outside.
10: Your stock ticker symbol is LUV. Right. Love. Yes. Is in the air.
2: Love is in the air. Love is our stock symbol. It is also our headquarters. We fly out of Love Field.
10: Elizabeth Bryant is the vice president at Southwest Airlines University. The company prides itself on one emotion.
2: If we have an environment where people care for each other and can be themselves coming to work every day, that naturally leads to friendships, relationships, sometimes marriages. (laughs) So how's your day?
10: That's good. Brian's husband, Tori, also works at the airline, which makes them one of about 1,500 love couples. But there are rules about workplace relationships at Southwest Airlines, such as a ban on supervisors dating subordinates. At any point, did you find yourself thinking maybe we need to rein in our culture to protect ourselves and our employees?
2: If there's misbehavior, then you manage the misbehavior. Uh, The culture that we have here is one that is—it's authentic, it's transparent, it really is founded in taking care of one another. It's worked for us for 45 years.
10: To hear Southwest Airlines tell it, whenever love takes flight, so does business. So the culture that you think is best for the business also happens to create relationships.
2: Absolutely, you can't get one without the other. Well I think we have always believed that if we take care of our employees first, they will naturally take care of their customers. And if we take care of our customers, our customers will come back. You're not 100% satisfied with the service. We do have eight emergency exits on board the aircraft.
10: Customers might notice flight attendants Dean and Terry Hansen.
9: It's very important for us to keep our work relationship professional. We never want to bring any of our problems to work. Not that We don't trust you, but the flight attendants are coming through the aircraft right now to not only show you their armpit areas, but also to double check and make sure your seatbelts are securely fastened.
5: Is it difficult working with him? No, I mean, I'm his best audience, first of all. I don't know what he would do without me on the
9: plane. Absolutely, yes. Have I told you today how much I love working with you? Terry and
10: Dean <laughs> met in the air on a training flight 18 years ago. Here we are. Now they're a team on the ground, too. The married couple just bought a home in Loveland, Colorado. All
3: right, This is our career. We're not going anywhere for a long time.
7: Here's
9: the new home. Mm -hmm. Trust, trust. (laughs) We're in love with this company. We're in love with each other. We love working together. All done. This is a true Valentine's Day for us.
10: Back in Hershey, Rob and Kay are making sure all those kisses get out on time and saving a few for each other just not the chocolate kind.
7: Buy me a bag of potato chips. (laughs) I would much rather have that, yes.
10: No chocolate. No, no,
2: no. (laughs) No.
3: Our Steve Hartman has found a stand-up guy who gets his laughs by standing up for teachers.
9: There we go, let's go. At a Varnett charter school in Houston, Eddie Brown is teaching sixth graders about the different forms of energy.
8: Mechanical energy is movement.
9: The kids right. love him in the classroom. Good job today. But by all accounts, Eddie is even more effective in the teacher's lounge, where he demonstrates the power of laughter.
2: She speaks Spanish, Mr. Brown.
9: Eddie is always making fun of his frustrations, always finding humor in the tortures of the job. Soon they leave, Oh. And his
8: audience can clearly relate. What is it doing? Oh, you feel that way too? Ha! I, I thought I was the only one. I'm not crazy. I already knew my immediate circle of teachers went through it. But I didn't know that this transcended districts and states, countries.
9: Eddie discovered that reach quite by accident. About a year ago, he posted a video on his Facebook page, called it, What Public School Teachers Really Say.
8: Professional development, I'm as professionally developed as I'm gonna get. That video went viral,
9: as did the next. See, this is why I tipped the bartender
8: so much. She's the only one that understands me. And
9: now, 60 videos later, that ordinary science teacher from Houston is an icon among educators, selling out his teachers-only comedy tour across the country. It's like Elvis with a master's degree performing an entire set about mandatory staff meetings.
10: You gotta do two things to have a short meeting. Shut up, up.
8: What did you tap into? It's what they want to say and don't say. First of all, we don't get paid enough. I can't stress that enough. It's not being able to teach how you want to teach. And in
9: that sense, there's nothing funny about his comedy.
8: Don't do that in my class.
9: There's this underlying theme to each joke that teachers are fed up with being micromanaged and would like to be trusted again. In fact, at the end of each show, Eddie is as serious as detention.
8: So don't let them snatch your creativity. We'll be getting tired of it.
9: And that's how this one man
8: Thank so much.
9: came to speak for an occupation.
2: Are you judging Pakistan's
3: next hot model?
6: You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture.
3: Still i come. I'm so stupid. The big fuss.
0: There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma.
3: Over the big sick.
6: I went to uh, Coney Island recently and I rode this roller coaster called The Cyclone. The scariest experience of my life. (laughs) And I grew up in Pakistan.
3: (laughs) It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. That's Kumail Nanjiani on The Late Show with Dave Letterman a few years back. Come next month, he and his wife, Emily Gordon, may be in the Oscar spotlight, provided one of the winning envelopes holds the name of their movie, The Big Sick. Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes has a story of art, imitating life.
5: Okay, welcome to our home. It's we uh warn. we should warn you. It's we're getting a little bit of work done. It's a little messy. But come on in. Okay, I'm coming. In. Oh my god, look yeah. at this.
7: Kumeo Nanjiani and his wife Emily Gordon have had their lives turned
6: upside down.
5: All new furniture, um new kitchen stuff. Yeah. Are you learning something?
6: Yes, <laughs> we're getting all new furniture. You're just repeating yeah. what I say. New I'm kitchen stuff.
7: The upheaval forced them into an Airbnb in Los Angeles where, watching television... You weren't even in your own... No! No! They first learned that they had won an Oscar nomination for writing The Big Sick... original screenplay. ...about their love affair. The
14: Big Sick. Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani.
6: And he said our names, and we screamed and cried. We were like, oh, my God, you're nominated for an Oscar. So are you! Woo! <laughs> I have to tell you something, Bye. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl! Hey, you can't look like you and yell, white girl. It's OK. We hate terrorists.
7: They'd never written a movie before, but decided to try and tell the basically Cause... true story together. Are you judging Pakistan's next
6: top model? You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture? Oh my god, I'm so stupid. It's sort of your typical... Right boy needs girl, boy keeps girl secret from family because he's supposed to get arranged married.
0: There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma.
6: And then she gets really sick and has to be put into a coma. Story, you know, that one. Have you guys heard of this drug cocktail called cheese? The movie
7: begins as their real romance began. Kumail was doing stand-up in a Chicago comedy club. And Emily, played by Zoe Kazan, Pakistan heckled him. Really Your meeting, as they say, you met cute, uh, is in the movie.
5: Yes. Kumail made a joke on stage and asked, is Pakistan in the house? Is
6: Pakistan in the house?
5: <laughs> I just woohooed as if I was from Pakistan.
6: Really? You're not from Pakistan. I would have noticed you.
5: Which is a good line.
7: At the time, Emily was working as a therapist, Kumail... A Pakistani immigrant stand-up comedian.
5: One thing that happened in the movie that we changed.
6: This is your name in Urdu.
5: The Kmale in the movie Ooh. writes Emily's name in Urdu and kind of presents it to her. And Emily in the movie is like
6: Does this move for I've had some minor success with it.
5: This move. I bet you use this on all the girls. Whereas Emily in reality fell for that so hard. And I did not realize until months later that he had done that with several other girls.
6: I wasn't, like, a player or anything, but I had done that before.
5: (laughs) Yeah.
7: (laughs) Kumail was accepted to Grinnell College in Iowa. So in 1997, he moved cold turkey from loud, overcrowded, teeming Karachi to, well, the middle of nowhere. Total culture shock, right? Yeah. Raised in a devout Muslim family, he had yet to shake a girl's hand. So this girl sticks her hand out to say hi. Yeah, and, and I'm what like,
6: do do? oh, my God, I'm going like, to do this. And we're in love now. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> okay, so let's set a date. <laughs> yeah.
7: So do you remember the very first time you got up in front of an audience?
6: So it was my senior year of college, and I was so terrified.
7: What was, was so your bad. subject? Do you remember?
6: I remember one of the jokes I did. It was about how I always wanted to have a unit of measurement named after myself because that was like all the cool scientists had him, you know, Kelvin. Like, Jules, yeah. Kelvin, you know, like turned the <laughs> torpedoes up to five nanjiani's <laughs> like five nanjiani's that's way too much power. <laughs> Most people can't handle one Nanjiani, and then I would go, hey. You would go, hey? I would go, hey. I, I went, hey. Oh my
7: God. Now hey. I know why you like her. She laughs at all your stuff. She
6: <laughs>, laughs at all my stuff. Please welcome Kumail Nanjiani, ladies and gentlemen.
7: Kamel went from Iowa
6: to Letterman. My name is Kamel, but Microsoft Spellcheck thinks it should be Camel.
7: <laughs> and onto a starring this. role in, in HBO's
6: did Silicon Valley. Do you think I have too much product in my hair? Nope. I think you should use more. Are you saying that because you think I look ridiculous and you want me to look more ridiculous? Which answer will get more of that stuff in your hair? <laughs>
7: Last fall, he hosted Saturday Night Live.
6: My fantasy is when someone's racist to me, I want danger to befall them immediately. And then I want to rescue them just to see the confused look on their face.
7: Kumail rarely told political jokes until President Trump and the Muslim ban.
6: The point is that Muslims are complicated people like everybody else. Not all Muslims are good, not all Muslims are bad, just like all people. You
5: should be on that show, Saturday Night Live. Listen,
6: that's a great idea. I should email them. I don't know, you know why I'm not know that.
5: I, that was part I of what, what the movie was important, was that we wanted to show, like, just a Muslim family.
11: Muslims having
6: fun.
5: Yeah.
11: Humi. Go and pray, now, so then we can eat ice cream. Go, what? go, go. Yeah, yeah, Please I go. Go.
5: Because I know you are ice cream.
7: At the heart of the movie is the issue of Kumail's family not wanting him they to marry outside, outside the face. What are you doing here? There is only one thing that we have ever asked for you, Kumi, that you be a good Muslim and you marry a Pakistani girl. That is it, one thing. How did you ever tell them about Emily then?
6: Well, it happens the way kind of it happened in the movie.
7: In the movie, as in real life, Emily almost died. While her doctors tried to figure out what was wrong with her, they put her in a medically induced coma for eight days. Kumail rarely left her side. So how do you bring your parents in on this?
6: One time they called and I just answered and I think I was just too tired and I think I just cried on the phone. And I said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I've been dating this girl and she's in a coma right now. She's very, very sick. And my mom's initial reaction immediately was like, is she gonna be okay? What's going on? And she did that?
7: knew that, that she was not a Pakistani yes, she Muslim. Did.
6: Yeah, I said that she, her name was Emily. It was the
7: first giveaway. Pretty good yeah. tell, yeah.
6: And then it wasn't until you know I called them and I said, she's awake, she's gonna be okay. And that's when my mom got upset at me. She was like, how could you do this to me? This is not okay either. You guys break it off or you just have to get married to her. And that's what she said that. Marry her and then we can accept her. When we saw Emily, the warmth that she emitted and the uh, lovable personality that she had, she absolutely captivated us.
7: We spoke via FaceTime to Kumail's dad, Dr. Ajaz Najiani, a psychiatrist in New Jersey. So tell us um, what happened when you saw the movie. And there was your life in a way. The
6: movie, we left the movie, in fact, on two, three occasions, I was in tears and my wife was just nudging me and making fun of me. <laughs> Here's Emily. That was very sweet. Emily. <laughs> I
5: love you guys, too. I'm not in this part, so I'm going to go now.
6: <laughs> when they put Emily in the coma, literally the moment that she went under, I remember looking at her and saying, if she comes out of this, we're going to get married. And I know it sounds made up and it sounds dramatic. It's a little
5: little creepy. (laughs) It's
6: a little creepy. creepy. I would have asked you. I wasn't going to do it while you were up there. Although you
5: didn't, so that's interesting.
7: They got married three months after Emily left the hospital.
5: It's a good thing, right? Yeah. The two of you. Oh, yeah. We're good. I'm I'm glad we found each
8: other.
6: It's such a strange experience to go through something like this, where you make a movie about yourself and have it do well. Your life changes. So it's good that we have each other to go through.
5: Yeah, we take turns kind of Freaking out. Freaking out. We try not to freak out
6: at the same time. It can be very overwhelming, so we try and coordinate like, yeah, you can take Tuesday, but right now I'm going to spin out.
3: With Valentine's Day just three days away, candy store owners are dreaming of sweet success including the celebrity confectioner our Alina Cho has dropped in on. You eat at least one piece of candy every day.
16: That's, that's an understatement. <laughs> it's all part of the job. Dylan Lauren is founder and CEO of Dylan's Candy Bar. Her New York flagship, three floors and 15,000 square feet, is said to be the largest candy store in the world with the largest
8: selection. 7,000 candies, but we rotate them. So we rotate every holiday, every special occasion.
16: It's one of New York's most popular tourist destinations. This is your nostalgia area.
8: Yes, people love seeing what they grew up with.
16: She says the store attracts more than two million visitors a year.
8: Oprah, when she came, I mean, the whole store was buzzing about that for weeks.
16: DOWNSTAIRS, THERE'S A WHOLE WALL OF CELEBRITY FAVORITES. Uh,
8: MADONNA. SHE LOVES RED HOTS. AND BILL CLINTON LIKES... HE LIKES PAYDAY.
16: PAYDAY. THIS ALL BEGAN AT HER SIXTH BIRTHDAY PARTY.
6: COME WITH ME AND YOU'LL BE...
16: WHEN HER PARENTS PLAYED THE CLASSIC MOVIE Willy WONKA AND THE CHOCOLATE
8: FACTORY FOR DYLAN AND HER FRIENDS. I LOVE THAT MOVIE AND I'VE PROBABLY WATCHED IT A HUNDRED TIMES SINCE. I want an everlasting gobstopper. Me too. The idea of wanting to live in this magical candy land is something I wanted to bring to life.
16: But how to do it required some help. And who better to turn to than her father, fashion legend Ralph Lauren. At what point did you realize what your father did?
8: I never really thought about, you know, them being world famous. A lot of people come up to me still. So I have this shirt with a stain on it. Can I get another one? (laughs) Speaking of shirts. As a kid, you know, seriously, I think seeing my dad have these jars of of fabric and swatches to design his shirts, I wanted to eat the the fabric because I thought it looked like candy. It was so beautiful.
16: What did your father teach you in terms of how to approach business?
8: what i love is that my dad has very much stuck to his gut and stuck to his guns and i believe that's really important to, to follow your gut and also to not be a follower my dad is a trendsetter you know i see competitors popping up but he's always been like it don't look at them you know it's like if you watch them you're it's going to slow you down like go your path but don't be threatened by it
16: good advice dylan's candy bar just celebrated its sweet 16th birthday With 16 locations nationwide and plans to open soon in Dubai and Japan. Just looking at it one more time. Dylan Lauren is more than just the face of the brand, she's a working executive who pays attention to the tiniest of details.
8: This is excellent.
16: At this staff meeting, the subject is marketing a new line of healthier candies. Because everything
8: else is so colorful, I want people to understand it's vegan, it's gluten-free, nut-free, allergen-free. Her high-end
16: candy empire includes not just sweets, but collaborations with companies that make clothing, bedding, baby strollers. She even makes candy for Saturday Night Live. I think there will be some people who will watch this and say, Dylan Lauren, daughter of Ralph Lauren. Yep. Why didn't she just work for her dad? or right frankly why work at all right you didn't have to do any of this
8: yeah sometimes i think that when it's stressful and i'm traveling and i go from one country to the next and you know i just want to like sit and relax but i've always been driven
16: lauren has her own family now married to financier paul Arroway, the couple has young twins appropriately named cooper blue and kingsley rainbow She recently won the candy equivalent of an Oscar. She's been on dozens of magazine covers, but she says it's the Dylan Lauren Barbie doll she's most proud of.
8: I actually kind of wish I looked exactly like her.
16: (laughs) Dylan Lauren says she has big plans for her business, guided by her father, and inspired by the vision of Walt Disney.
8: Could there be a candy hotel? You are onto something. Like Disney, I, I hope to open a candy theme park, maybe a candy hotel. So trust me, you're not far.
3: Visitors to a log cabin in Kentucky are right to ask is it true that Abraham Lincoln slept here? On the eve of Lincoln's 209th birthday tomorrow, Brooke Silva Braga has our answer. Right there is where I'm gonna go in.
12: Professor Henry Grascino
3: mayer has come to Hodgenville,
12: Kentucky to solve a mystery almost as old as Abraham Lincoln himself. Someone pulls off the highway, sees you guys drilling into this cabin, and says, what are you doing here? What do you say to them? What we're trying to do is authenticate when this cabin was made by using the tree rings and the logs Some say our 16th president, born in these hills in 1809, spent some of his childhood in this cabin at Knob Creek. But did he?
0: This one has really nice outer curved surface down here. That's going to give us the outermost tree ring that was ever formed, and therefore, it'll give us the cutting date of this particular
12: log. The professor and his team from the University of Tennessee have used this technique to date all sorts of old things, including back in 2004, another Lincoln cabin just down the road the one he was actually born in. Or was he?
13: I think at one point there was even a plaque that said this might be the Lincoln Cabin. We just didn't know.
12: What we do know is that Honest Abe was born here at this park bearing his name. But Ranger Natalie Barber says no one honestly knows what happened to the Lincoln Cabin.
13: There was no cabin here. It was likely gone by the end of the Civil War. About a mile up the road was a different farm, the Davenport Farm, and there was a cabin on it. And the story was the cabin had originally sat here, but was moved to that farm.
12: That those were the people that grabbed the logs and moved them down the road.
13: That's it. And that's a story you can sell. And so that's a story that they sold.
12: Which explains the genesis of a bizarre 1890s tour that paired Lincoln's cabin with the cabin of another Kentucky native son, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, and brought the cabins of this unlikely duo to towns and cities across America after which all the logs wound up in storage until a group of private citizens decided to put the cabin back together at Lincoln's birthplace. How did they know which logs were which?
13: They didn't. They had no idea. (laughs) So They
12: just kind of threw them together. They just
13: kind of threw them together. A few
12: Davis logs, a few Lincoln logs. If they fit together, why not?
13: If you've got a traditional cabin, there you go.
12: Wherever they came from, when the professor dated the logs used to build the cabin, he discovered they'd been cut when Lincoln was already in Congress.
13: 1848, it's not Lincoln's cabin.
12: Which is why they now call it a symbolic cabin. Some visitors like Lee Van Martin leave disappointed. I feel kind of cheated. You feel kind of cheated, why is that? It's not the real thing. (laughs) But Lincoln's importance to Hodgenville is the real thing. You have Lincoln everything. You have the Lincoln National Bank, you have Lincoln General Store, you have the Lincoln Jamboree down the street. Cody McDowell works at the Lincoln General Store. Now, Lincoln's kind of
1: our identity. That's who we are, you know,
12: Lincoln. Besides, they still have the story of the other cabin, the one we showed you back at Knob Creek. It actually belonged to a childhood friend of the president's, so surely Lincoln would have spent time here. Wow, that's a nice core. Time to put the story to the test. Back in the lab, the researchers sand the wood to reveal its surface then precisely measure the pattern of wide and narrow rings and try to match it to trees with established dates. That pattern is unique, just like a fingerprint, just like a DNA match. And, and we have a saying, trees don't know how to lie. The trees don't lie, but they seem to often reveal that people have been lying. People like things to be old. It's not so much that they're lying, it's just that sometimes history gets it wrong. This is exciting, huh? Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> One little bit at a time
12: having entered all the data into a computer program.
7: Okay, this is it.
12: This is it. They asked the truthful trees what year they'd been cut down.
7: 1861.
12: Oh no.
0: 1861.
12: (laughs) He was already president. That's right. Unfortunately,
0: this cabin has nothing to do with Abraham Lincoln.
12: So no, Abraham Lincoln did not sleep here or here. What changes now for Hodgenville? Natalie Barber says. Maybe nothing.
13: People aren't turning off the interstate and coming here to experience Hodgianville because of a cabin. They're here because of Lincoln, who he was as a person, not the wood that surrounded him. It's the story and the man that's always going to drive people here.
3: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Sunday morning.